This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. All right, this is a big, beautiful writer's interview with Danny Shapiro in conversation with myself, Danielle Laporte, and Linda Sieberson. Off the top, we want to let you know where you can find all of us. So, dannyshapiro.com. On Facebook, she is Danny J. Shapiro. And on Twitter, Danny J. Shapiro as well. You know, you can find me at daniellelaporte.com. And Linda is rocking it at Book Mama. And we begin everything with this blessing. So, here we go. We are here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now, and so it is. Mm, nice. Mm, lovely. So Danielle mm. and I are, this is Linda, we wanted to bring you Danny Shapiro because of how much we admire her. And because even though she's been a recent guest on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday for her second memoir, Devotion, Danny is first and foremost a writer's writer. And this author of five novels now, it's five, right, Danny? Yes, yes. Yeah, she makes Danielle and I sort of giddy <laughs> with the way her mind works as a writer and the way she articulates her thoughts. And, Danny, you say things like, it is impossible to spend your days writing and not begin to know your own mind. Mm. Or, writing is an act of faith. We must believe without the slightest evidence that believing will get us anywhere. (laughs) And, you know, I love things that you say about the writing life. You know, your work is going to be flawed, and you might feel like you're starting over with each and every new book. And then it never gets easier. That's why you're here. I mean, we can talk a little bit about your stats. So, you know, Danny's work has appeared in The New Yorker, Tin House, One Story L, The New York Times Book Review, the op-ed pages of The New York Times, The LA Times. You've been broadcast on This American Life. You've taught writing programs, which is astounding to me, at Columbia and NYU and the New York School and Wesleyan University, and then you're contributing editor to Condé Nast Traveler. I love those pieces. But I think, you know, back to the writer's writer. You live in Litchfield Country in this incredible home in Connecticut that looks like a writer lives there, and you've got this long, winding drive. For anybody who follows you on social media, we get to see you driving up the drive with the snow everywhere and the dog waiting for you. and Pretty precious stuff. So I think the last thing I'll say on that is we're both very big fans of your latest book, Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. So there we go. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for I, It's funny listening to that because whenever I'm introduced and I hear the list of things I've done, 
I sort of, you know, I know that I've done those things and I kind of can hear the way the list must sound to someone hearing it. But at the same time, the dailiness, you know, the, <laughs> the daily practice, the daily struggle, the at times really difficult, you know, just periods of time of despair and of being stuck and truly it doesn't get easier. I mean, I think that's like one of the most important messages that I have for writers is don't think that if you have X, Y, and Z, like I'm here to tell you I've had the X, Y, and Z, and I'm incredibly grateful for it, but it actually makes absolutely no difference when I am sitting and facing the blank page. (laughs) It really doesn't, and that feeling... I mean, one of my best friends won the Pulitzer Prize two years ago. And, you know, she doesn't get up in the morning and think while she's brushing her teeth, you know, hey, check me out. I won the Pulitzer. (laughs) Like, it just, I've actually done an informal poll among a whole bunch of my, like, really super successful friends, not just artists, one who's the editor-in-chief of a huge magazine, and just different kinds of people, and said, like, do you wake up in the morning, and when you're brushing your teeth, do you think, like, you know, check me out, I'm this person, you know? If I could curse on the radio, I would say exactly what I say, but like, hey, I'm so-and-so, blankety so-and-so, you know? (laughs) And everybody just looks, like, sort of stricken and horrified at the very thought that they would ever think of themselves that way, because if you're an artist, or if you're doing anything that's important in the way of connecting with your internal life or with other people, the minute you would ever start to think that way about yourself, you're done. Yeah. You know, I mean, it might feel good for a minute, but it would be really bad. It's not good for longevity, Mm. career longevity. Well, Danny, because this is us, you could say, I am Danny fucking Shapiro. (laughs) I was hoping you would interject that, too. You know, I'll be going somewhere with my husband, like, uh, about to go give a speech or something like that, and right before I leave him to go into the green room or whatever, I will say to him, you know, like, just, like, say something good. I need something encouraging. To say, like, a little bit of something encouraging, Mm -hmm. and he'll look at me and say... You're Danny fucking Shapiro. <laughs> like, you know, that that's actually not helpful. <laughs> he doesn't know how the female brain works. <laughs> that might work for men. Mm. It's like you look pretty, honey. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you smell. I like mm-hmm. your shoes. <laughs> uh. Well, one question that I wanted to ask you is about those I'll be them fleeting. I'll be at them fleeting. When was your first I did it, I pulled it off moment? You're just like, I've arrived. I know this isn't going to last, but I'm just going to sit here for five minutes because I arrived. The first, what just came to mind when you said that was when my fourth book, uh, Slow Motion, which was my first memoir, was coming out. I went down to the newsstand on Broadway. I was living in Manhattan, and I lived on 92nd and Broadway. And I went down to the newsstand that would get the magazines first because I knew that there were going to be certain pieces written about me, coming out in magazines. I had no idea what, and I knew that Vogue was covering the book in some way, but I didn't know what. And I opened the magazine. It was the issue that I knew that the review of Slow Motion was going to be in, and it was a two-page spread written by the memoirist Mary Cantwell, who was a hero of mine. She was an amazing literary memoirist, and it was this beautiful review, and there was just something that was so much bigger about that than what my imagining had been and, you know, and that I could ever have imagined. So that was a moment. I mean, there have been many moments. There's certainly 
there was the moment that I held my first book in my hands and it was a book, you know, it was a real book, mm-hmm. or there was the moment that I got my teaching job at Columbia and I thought, wow, I cannot believe it. I mean, I had dropped out of high school and, well, I left high school a year early to go to college, so I didn't have a high school degree. And then when I dropped out of college, my seminal degree at that point, at the age of like 22, 23 years old until I went back to college, was the sixth grade of the Solomon and Schechter Day School in Union County, New Jersey. I mean, I did not think of myself as somebody who was ever going to become a professor at Columbia University, and then there I was. Mm. So, like, there are just these ways in which, like, I think a lot of women feel this way, where our younger selves are kind of looking at the selves that we've become, or the selves that we've become look back at our younger selves and just think, like, wow. Wow, honey, like, check this out. Look look how far I traveled. Who knew? Who knew this was possible? Did you think it was possible? No, absolutely not. No, I really didn't. I put one foot in front of the other at a certain point in my life, which really was when I was 23 years old. I was really kind of a mess and was having an affair that I've written about quite a bit. I wrote about in my first memoir with an older married man who was a real sociopath. Uh, Of course, I did not know that. That's nice. Um, And, you know, it was just like, it was all just drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And I had dropped out of school, and I was sort of half-heartedly acting in TV commercials, and I had a little role on a soap opera. I was like so lost, like living the wrong life, like not the life that was supposed to be my life somehow. But yet it was my life. And my parents were in a terrible car accident when I was in that state. And my father was killed in a car accident. And my mother was very badly injured. And that devastating accident is actually what saved my life and turned my life around. Mm -hmm. And I went back to college and I stayed. And then I went to graduate school and I stayed. And I think so much of our, like, we reverse engineer our stories all the time, right? Like, somebody will say to me, like, did you always know you wanted to be a writer? I didn't know it was possible to be a writer. I always wrote. I think I always was a writer, but I didn't know that that was something that someone could grow up and be. And so when I started taking those steps in college, in graduate school, writing my first novel, I was sort of writing for my life. And I had an awful lot to prove to myself. I felt like a complete and total screw up. And I had a lot to prove. And so in those early years of writing, it really had to do with sort of climbing out of this place uh, that was very dark and grim that I had found myself in, or that I had put myself in. You know, Danny, you and I are sort of new friends, and we share something, which is the accident. I call it the accident in all caps. And mine mm-hmm. was an earlier generation, so my grandfather was killed in a car accident. He was coming mm-hmm. to visit my father, and so my father's father was killed instantly, his little sister was killed instantly, and his mm-hmm. mother was in a coma for weeks, and she never fully recovered like your mother. Mm-hmm. So for me, what that did for me growing up under the sort of headlines of the crash that were everywhere in the newspapers and all around, you know, saved forever in the memory books of our family, mm-hmm. was it gave me an incredible understanding of the fleetingness of time. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm assuming that for you, you know, you take the worst thing that's ever happened in your life and you used it as the fuel to create the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And do you see, I think you probably see this a lot with your clients. I see this too, and, you know, we both teach retreats. But the people that sometimes have the most success are the ones who are fueled by this understanding of this fleetingness of time. Mm. Yeah, that, that's beautifully put. There's a moment in my memoir, Devotion, where I write about the people who actually really 
don't hold the understanding that life is fragile. Yeah. Like, you know, the ones who are just, don't make that assumption. They don't, they just don't live that way. I don't count any of those people among my closest friends. I don't know how to, <laughs> it's not that I don't like them or I don't, the fat, them and happy people. I envy them a little bit, you know, yeah. but I sort of feel like Always. it's just not, and I don't walk around in a state of moroseness about it at all. I walk yeah. around in a state of, I think, kind of almost at times an almost unbearable gratitude of like, wow, look at this, look at today. I don't know if it's going to be like this tomorrow. And it wasn't like this at other points. And, uh, you know, the other shoe will drop someday. That's what life is. You know, to love someone is to become able to lose that person. But very much the feeling in teaching and in thinking about writing and writing memoir in particular, that feeling of what do you do with what you've been given? You know, what are you going to do with it? I was absolutely fueled by the loss of my father and by that period of time, there were a number of deaths in my family as well and rifts in my family, like the whole family just fell apart. And I was really kind of on my own in many ways. And I suppose that there could have been another way of dealing with that, but that other way would have tugged me under, you know, like an undertow, and I would never have survived it. And so kind of coming out with that feeling of, and it really has changed over the years. I don't feel that feeling I had as a young writer of, I have something to prove. I have things I want to accomplish creatively. I have a feeling of every time I finish a book of not knowing, I've only known how to write that book. I don't know how to write the next book. We know how to write the book that we're writing, or we know how to write the book that we've just finished writing. That's why I think it doesn't get easier. But that feeling of I want to be better with each book. I want everything that I do because look, let's face it, there are easier ways to spend a life than alone in a room, you know, facing, you know, facing the blank page or facing the blank screen. At one point in still writing, I say, you know, the page is your mirror. You're constantly coming face to face with your own resistance and fears and demons, you know, whatever's there, whatever's there, you're coming face to face with it because you're either avoiding it or you're going there. And so why do that unless it's with this feeling of, I'm going to make art out of this. I'm going to make yeah. something new out yeah. of this. I'm going to make something that's going to touch another human being out of this. A friend of mm-hmm. mine who is not a writer feels sorry for me, and he says to me all the time, I'm just that dumb and happy. I feel sorry for you, for the need that you have mm. to express yourself. You never get to rest. Mm. <laughs> you know, he goes, I can turn on reality TV and chill out and not have to think about anything till the next day. And you're on this never-ending quest to express. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. Mm. You said how sometimes you feel that jealousy. I think, Danielle, you've expressed that as well, right? There's not total peace being a writer. Yeah, I'm constantly dissatisfied. (laughs) Well, there's this great quote that you both might know that Martha Graham wrote to Agnes DeMille, the Mm. choreographer who had choreographed the ballet sequence in the musical Oklahoma, and she's getting all this praise for it, but she really didn't think it was her best work. So she was really bummed. She really felt like she was getting all this praise for work that wasn't that good, and the work that she thought was her great work was being ignored. And her best friend, Martha Graham, wrote to her, and Martha Graham said, she said a number of things. She said, keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction whatever at any time. There is only, and this, Danielle, this is what made me think of this when you just said that, there is only a queer, divine dissatisfaction that keeps us marching and keeps us more alive than the others. Yeah, you that. Know, I think like, you, you know, your fat, dumb, and happy friend doesn't get to be more alive than the others. 
Right. But he's not experiencing that queer divine dissatisfaction. But that whole idea of <laughs> there is no satisfaction whatever at any time. I, I remember reading that and being comforted by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, me too. Yeah. Me, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so Linda and I, we agree on a lot and we disagree on a lot, which yep. is why we're an awesome duo. Okay, so <laughs> when Linda looks back at her body of work, she thinks, that's pretty good. Wouldn't change a thing. When I look back on my body of work, I think I want to burn everything that I wrote before noon Pacific time today. So the it's pretty good versus you just want to burn it and shave your head. Where are you on that scale? Well, you know, Raymond Carver, the great short story writer, used to get up and give readings from his published books with a red pencil in his hand. Um, (laughs) I would say that I am closer to the Danielle camp on this. I don't go back and revisit much. Yeah, me either. That's probably my secret. And I also, I mean, my first three novels, I really feel like I was learning how to write, and they were published, all of them. But they're my books that are out of print. Many people actually think that Slow Motion is my first book, and I don't tend to disabuse them of that because it sort of feels like (laughs) it's my first book that I stand behind. Mm. But even so, I stand behind it, but... You know a book I think is really good of mine? The one that I'm writing right this minute. That, like, I, yeah. Or not even really good. Mm-hmm. The one that I love is the one that I'm working on. Yeah. Anything that I've written before. And look, we never finish books. We reach a point where we've made them as good as we can with the tools we have at the moment we have them. And mm-hmm. so could any book benefit from being put in a drawer for another year and then pulled out again and looked at with cold eyes? Probably. But at a certain point, you say, it's time for this to go into the world. I've taken this as far as I can. But that doesn't mean that it ever feels. I mean, I, the one book of mine in recent years, it was a novel. As I was working on it, I was really loving it. That's the one that ended up in it. I put it away. I loved it right into a corner. <laughs> I, I loved it right into a brick wall. I just like, <laughs> lost it. So I've learned that like, it might have been fun to love it as I was loving it, but it wasn't actually good for the work itself. You talk about the daily habit, the discipline. Do you still write five days a week during regular business hours? And then everybody listening wants to know, what do you do on the days if you don't feel like writing? Mm. When I'm working on a book, that has always been my rhythm, is you know, five days a week, three pages a day, 15 pages a week. I mean, you know, there are bad days and there are better days, but really that being kind of the rhythm of just wanting to be working when... Like, be in step with the rest of humanity, not be working in the middle of the night, not be, you know, working on a weekend or whatever. But I've got to say, to be completely honest, that I think that all of our lives have sped up so much, and there's so much more that is demanded of us, and, or I feel there's so much more demanded of me, my travel schedule, my teaching schedule, my writing essays for publication, all of that kind of stuff makes the steadiness of that kind of work increasingly elusive and it makes it all the more important to find that rhythm, like to find that daily rhythm. I think in the past six weeks I've spent four nights in my own bed. That's not conducive to diving deep and doing the real work. And just about every writer I know is facing that dilemma because you can't operate at the speed that social media and the internet and just the speed of life in 2015 has created and do that really powerfully internal work. So can you Mm -hmm. talk briefly about how you're getting it done? How do you nail those deadlines? Because I know some of what your deadlines are and they're daunting. 
So do you have a schedule? Like, what do you do to nail it? Well, with deadlines for shorter pieces and things like that, I think it really, those don't feel like as much of a problem for me because I look at what I have to do and I create conditions around myself so that I can get it done. I try not to sabotage myself. Like, for example, (laughs) I'm not going to go to a cafe to write that I know, like my local cafe, if I go there and sit down to try to write, 20 people I know will walk into that cafe. (laughs) You know, I live in a small town, and they'll plop themselves down across the table from me and say, so, what are you working on? What's going on? What are you doing this summer? (laughs) And so I'm not serious if I'm doing that, because I won't be able to do the work. So, like, finding the conditions. Like, Linda, the last time I saw you, I was in L.A. I was staying at a friend's guest house. Yeah. And the conditions in that guest house are ideal Mm -hmm. for work. And I really got a ton done while I was there. Because the pictures were heavenly. I was like, I want to go. It's, a, it's an amazing place, and it's very secluded and very quiet, and no one was going to bother me. And the phone, if it rang, was not going to be for me. So finding ways to make the time sacred and to really mean it. I think what's harder for me these days is embarking on a next book and the kind of long periods of concentration uninterrupted concentration. I mean, I think that's what's harder and harder to come by is the lack of interruption, and it's so essential. So, like, for example, I know that I have most of the month of April and May. I know that if I don't schedule, if I don't accept invitations, and I just say no, and I just create that quiet around myself, I will be able to accomplish an awful lot in that period of time. Or knowing that I have two weeks in June at a writer's colony on Whidbey Island, uh, mm-hmm. you know, off the coast of Seattle, Seattle. In, a ca- oh. in a cabin, you know, oh. by myself. But, I mean, I'm living for it. You know, it's yeah. like a bright spot on my calendar, but it's also <laughs> very... I said to my husband the other day, I need to, like, write the word no on a very large piece of paper and put it somewhere where I look at it. Because the invitations are so flattering and so wonderful. I mean, we were literally having this conversation yesterday where I was saying, I'm overextended. And I checked my email, and there was an invitation to come to teach for 10 days on a Greek island in July. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew that no matter what, I was going to have to say no to that. I was going Mm -hmm. to have to say no to that because at some point it becomes... The work has to be the central thing, and then everything else can arise out of it. But in these last few years, since Devotion came out and since I was on Oprah and just the pace of things picked up, it then becomes up to me to say, I need to go back into the cave. And the writing has to happen inside the cave. And it's easy to come out of the cave. You know, you come out, you blink, it's very bright out. You know, it's a lot of fun. There's all sorts of things to see and do. It's harder to go back in. And the longer you're out, for me at least, the harder it is to go back in. It feels really daunting. God, that's so true. Well, I'd love for everybody to get a sense of the time span. So Devotion came out in 2010. Mm-hmm. And then when did you get on Oprah? I know it was recently, but just let's anchor it down. Yeah, no, that's actually a great story. That's a great because, question. You know, when Devotion came out, a lot of good things happened for it. But, you know, Oprah didn't call. And, I mean, I never actually 
walked around thinking Oprah's going to call me, but had I thought that, it would have been around that time. You know, the book's just out, and and I did a lot of traveling and a lot of speaking for the book and a lot of different kinds of places from churches to yoga shalas to temples to bookstores to people's backyards to, you know. And then I wrote Still Writing, and Still Writing was about to come out. And one day I was in New York, and I was going to be teaching that night, and my phone rang, and I saw that it was my agent calling, and I I was in such a bad mood that I thought, oh, I'm sure this is going to be bad news, so I'm not even going to answer. <laughs> and like all day long, she called a couple of times, and I was like, oh, I just don't want to deal with it. Okay, that's hilarious. It's going to be whatever this bad thing is. I don't want to know. And right before six o'clock that night, I was about to go in and teach at this place called the Center for Fiction on East Forty Seventh Street in Manhattan. And I thought, well, let me just get this over with. I'll call her back and find out what's wrong. And I called her back. She's like, "Where have you been?" I said, "I'm just, I, you know, I'm said, what's wrong?" <laughs> and she said, "Well, I have some good news actually. I heard from the people at Oprah today, and." They're very interested in having you as a guest for Super Soul Sunday. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that means or what the timetable is going to be, but they're very interested in you. They want to set up a phone call. And that's how that began. It was three years after Devotion had come out. Oh, Lord. And it was completely not connected to my new publication of Still Writing. I don't even think they knew that I had a new book coming out. I think when I finally spoke to the wonderful, wonderful producer, the first thing she said to me is, you've been on our radar for a while. Yeah which I think is a wonderful lesson Mm -hmm. because we don't know those things. You know, I think all we can do in life in general is keep our heads down and put one foot in front of the other and really follow our instincts and our sense of what's right and what's next and allow whatever happens regarding all of that to happen in its own time. It's not... I mean, I've seen young writers with first books about to come out thinking, oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and I'm going to be on, you know, on NPR and, you know, and the Times is going to... Like, they have these fantasies about what's going to happen and all I know is that every single good thing that's ever happened in my writing life in the career part has been entirely surprising to me. Not in the sense that I had this bad feeling that nothing good was ever going to happen. I mean, surprising like it's felt... It's never been when I thought the phone's going to ring now. Yeah. I mean, isn't that like a law of nature? The phone does totally. not ring. <laughs> totally, the Murphy's Law. Okay, so yeah. Danny, switching gears a little bit, what's your best, what's your favorite mistake, career or otherwise? Mm. Oh, I've made so many. Um, <laughs> I'll stick with like my adult life. Uh, let's yeah. see. I would say in my career, it was being impatient at the very beginning feeling, when I went to Sarah Lawrence to graduate school, as I said, I had a lot to prove. And I was determined to write my first novel while I was in graduate school and sell it before I graduated. Whoa. And I did. Whoa. I did. <laughs> but that so what is that teaching everybody? Well, yeah. I, I'm about to tell you. The book wasn't ready. It wasn't ready. It was like, Whoa. it was okay. And because of that, I began my writing life, like my friend Jennifer Egan, who won the Pulitzer two years ago. It was like the tortoise and the hare, you know? She kept her head down. I have other examples of that, too. A wonderful writer friend of mine named Hannah Tinty kept their heads down until they had a first book that was ready. Mm. And those careers started out, like, really with a bang and in the right way. Mm. I 
think it took me about a decade to be taken seriously in the way that I wanted to be in the literary world because the first couple of books weren't that good. They were okay. Great admission. And you know, I tell my students that all the time. Like once you have a book enter the world, that's the book and you can't take it back. I had to write my way out of it and that is a wonderful thing to have to have done and to continue to have to do. I feel like that's (laughs) that's been my path. Can you talk about the pull to write? I read this great quote. You were talking about devotion. You said, devotion was a book I didn't want to write, but I had to write it. So can you talk about that I had to write it feeling? Oh, yeah. And actually, I had a recent epiphany about this. Devotion, I really, I was waiting for the next novel, and I was frustrated, as I always am, between books and full of despair, really feeling like, I don't know if another book is ever going to appear. I always feel that way. And devotion appeared, and it was really with that feeling of, like, horror. Like, oh, no, not this. No, no, I don't want to do this. And I was recently away and in a place where I had a lot of time to myself. And part of what I was planning on doing was writing a proposal, a short proposal for a book that my agent was very excited about that was kind of high concept, kind of an idea. You know, I could pitch it to you right now, and you would say, wow, good idea. And it was a good idea for somebody. And every time I sat down to try to work on that proposal, I got tired. I didn't mm-hmm. feel I didn't mm-hmm. feel it. And if I hadn't been in that place of solitude, I might have pushed forward because look, I make my living as a writer, so I need that next advance, you know, and yet I've never reached for the next book. I've never been like, you know, this is a good idea, I'm gonna do this. Right? And then in the meantime, I had been working on an essay, very literary essay, very kind of fragmented narrative. And I was really liking, to the degree that I ever do, I was liking what I was doing and where it was going. And I was already starting to think about what great place I might publish it in. And then one day, sitting there in this solitude, I thought, this isn't an essay. This is my next book. Mm. And it was an unwelcome thought. <laughs> and like that, a burden. <laughs> it was an unwelcome thought and that's how I knew that it was true because uh-huh. it wasn't something that it was like I wasn't straining for it and I realized that I had been straining that I had been like okay what's next what's next what's next even though I constantly counsel people not to do that I was doing that without even knowing I was doing that I was caught up in the pace of my life and in all the teaching and all of the speaking and all of the, you know, so what do people want next from you? Like, you know, like thinking in ways that are so detrimental to the creative process. I have not one book that I've ever written have I written because I thought, this is the next right thing. Mm. It's just been like, this is the next thing. This is, and sometimes you just really have to wait for it, really wait. And I shuddered to think, I mean, really, if I had not been in a place with that much solitude, I really might now, I would have finished the proposal, my agent would have gone out with it, she would have sold the book, I would have been happy for five minutes, my bank account would have been in better shape, and then I would have been faced with, oh, shit. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not the next book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Have you ever backed out of a deal? No, I never have, and I would... I hope that that would never happen, but that might have been something. What has happened is, I think with my third novel, I sold it based on a partial manuscript, and then I ended up throwing out the manuscript and writing a different book. 
But that's different. And with fiction, you can do that. Mm-hmm. With nonfiction, it's like, wait a minute, we bought this idea. Um, <laughs> so, no, it would have been something that would have felt to me. You know, Virginia Woolf has this beautiful quote in her A Writer's Diary, which I open randomly very often to just any, like, I open it like it's the I Ching and just, you know, <laughs> what does she have to offer me today? And, and one day I opened it and the phrase that leapt out at me was, one longs for a device that is not a trick. Mm-hmm. One longs for a device that is not a trick. And oh, what I, I realized control. about the book that I was thinking that I was going to do next was it was a trick. It was yeah. like, you know, mm-hmm. there's like an element of it where it was a stunt. And I've never written anything that's a stunt in my life. And like, am I going to start now? Mm-hmm. As I say, you have to crush your gimmicks. <laughs> yeah, who, are, who are you without them? Are you up for a quick multiple choice as we go in the final yard? Here? Sure. Sure, fine. Okay. Leonard Cohen or Rumi? Leonard Cohen. <laughs> She's an East Coast girl. Fiction or nonfiction? Oh. Oh, I know. Not Nonfiction. Mm. Morning or night? Night. New York or L.A.? Oh, <laughs> it's changing. I'm being bi-coastal. <laughs> you can claim bi-coastal. Okay, bi-coastal. <laughs> A gold or silver? Gold. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Mm. Mm. Linda, you want to take us across the finish line? Sure. Danny, what's your song that still must be sung? The creativity or message or production that has to get out of you. You don't mean that song in terms of literal song. You mean... No, not necessarily. Yeah. You know, I find where I am now that I'm all about trying to see, trying to understand something about the nature of time and memory, (laughs) you know, and the way that time moves and the way it all seems to be everything that's ever happened seems to still be happening in some way. And feeling like as a writer, I get to explore that in a way that no other art form does. You can't do that with paint. You know, you can't do that with dance. You can't do that with metal, you know. And that there's some way in which everything I've written for the last number of years, and I think it's why I'm loving the fractured narrative of just, you know, these pieces that are broken and putting them next to each other in different ways and seeing what happens, because it's a way of looking at time, which, I mean, I just is so, it's such a powerful, to me, a just endlessly interesting, powerful thing to think about. I agree. I agree. Oh, Danny, I'm so grateful you were able to make this time for us today. And I know that our beautiful writers group, they're going to be elated to hear this conversation. And, you know, one of the things that I love about you so much, and Danielle and I were talking about this, is your honesty. You know, you're one of the first real sort of mentors in the writing world that speaks real down and dirty about the process, about Mm -hmm. how there's going to be years of sacrifice and Mm -hmm. you're going to miss things. Your health is potentially going to suffer. You're going to miss Mm -hmm. anniversaries and birthdays and school plays and you're going to have fitful Mm -hmm. sleep and be plagued by self-doubt. And, you know, you don't sugarcoat it. And yet your love for the craft is something that I think we all hold on to. That's such a beautiful compliment. Thank you. I I just, you know, writing saved my life. And so I have such I have such love and honor and respect for the creative process. And I think that that's ultimately what makes me so honest about it because I feel like by sugarcoating it, 
it almost is creating a disservice to those who are trying to do it because there's this idea of effortless prose. I mean, prose that reads as effortless is the prose that has been, you know, just sweat over. You know, the hair pulled out over. But, you know, ultimately, you know, beautiful art appears to have just, you know, been born just the way it's meant to be. Yeah. This was juicy. You, this is like a great, warm, awesome lunch on like a really cold day. Very nourishing. It's going to be really Yay. nourished. Um, I want to close with a Danny Shapiro quote for everybody. All there is to do right at this very moment is breathe in, breathe out, and kiss the joy as it flies. Mm-mm-mm. Thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, love to everybody. Love. Thanks. To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on. Write on.